everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment through a brown and black lens. Welcome to episode 14, everyone. Um, I hope you're having a healthy and happy day. Our guests today are Academy Award-winning writer Kevin Wilmot, who won the Academy Award for writing Black Klansman along with other writers, uh, and Trey Byers, who you know from Empire. They're here to discuss their new film, 24th, which is about the true story of the all-black 24th United States Infantry Regiment and the Houston Riot of 1917, which resulted in the largest murder trial in history. Mike Sargent, big news coming out this weekend with the death of Chadwick Boseman. What was your immediate reaction? Because I was stunned. I'll be honest with you. I'll be honest with you. I was not stunned because uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention to social media. Chadwick Boseman had lost a considerable amount of weight in the last year. Yeah, and I thought he was just preparing for a role because no, he didn't say anything. And it was so like, if you're not going to say anything, you're just going to leave stuff to assumption. To me, that was a sure sign that something is wrong. Because if you were preparing for a role, you would have said something. It would have been like, ooh, what's the role? It would have been good, good hype. And the second thing is for you to not respond to quell the rumors and you know everybody else had theories people like oh he's just a thin dude to me it was obvious something was up i never thought cancer because that just seems too young yeah he's so young why why would that happen you know his death for me like i said it wasn't complete surprise it was more than disheartening but i will say this because i've had a, a little time to think about it i think one of the greatest things about chadwick not only did he portray all these great black American figures from history and then play, you know, arguably the most successful single hero superhero film so far in history, but as a man, you think about destiny and purpose. Here's a man who fulfilled his purpose, but his purpose goes beyond that. Forget everything he did and how, what a hero he is to the kids and how he, he will change the narrative and it changed the perspective in Hollywood about black stories traveling and so many things that that film did. And, and he did playing Jackie Robinson and all these historical figures, Thurgood Marshall. But here's a guy who Everybody has good things to say about him. Yeah. If you listen to you listen to his speeches, they're they're amazing, they're inspiring. And then you find out the last four years while he made all these great films, he was battling cancer, and you realize, wow, this guy represents everything that they say we are not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No scandals, no drugs, no past this, that, the other thing. Here is a man who fulfilled his destiny. Always respect. Everybody has the same things to say about him. And that, to me, is that's a hell of a legacy. Mike, why do you think that he just didn't take a break from making movies and just focused on his health. Because I think that as an artist and as a creator, at a certain point, especially after you get to be a certain age, and and I have to imagine to be in the position he's in, to represent, to be a hero where there has never been one like this, a, a, a black superhero for the world to see, for all children of color to see, the millions and millions and millions of children who will be able to see a black hero in a science fiction that is essentially, what if 
we were not colonized. There isn't a place on the planet or barely a place on the planet has not been colonized by another culture. And that concept alone is mind blowing and powerful. But, but I think legacy, you start thinking about what is your legacy? Why am I here? You know, to be thrust in that position, I think he just knew he had to do as much work as he could and stay out there and do what he can and inspire. You saw how he was visiting children who had cancer yeah. in the hospitals. So I, I just think that he knew he had a purpose and he was just going to fulfill it. That That's my take. He also happens to now have a historic record um, of the most liked tweet in the history yes. of social media, 7.4 million, but he had already broken that with 6.1 million right. and it just keeps on going. So it just seems like he's a universal figure liked by by everyone universally. I'm sure you've seen the speech he gave to Denzel Washington at uh, the AFI Achievement yeah, Awards. About how and, he, I guess, I, I think mentored him or, or paid his tuition. Paid his tuition, his trip the, uh, the, that was part of his studies and, and how he acknowledged those who came before him. For someone to acknowledge those who came before him, to have played a character and played so many of our ancestors and now he himself has joined the ancestors is a powerful and spiritually powerful thing, in my opinion. And that brings us to our interview with Kevin Wilmont and Trey Byers, who have this uh, new film called 24th. It's a historical drama, a black historical drama that there isn't that many of. And the idea behind here is an interesting part of story where uh, this all black infantryman went to Houston in 1917. And this is around the time of the riots where white people were just killing towns where black people lived and these guys actually fought back but they fought back in a way that might have been immoral and unethical and they paid the price of that now was it good was it bad this is the theme that kevin and trey explore in the movie 24th so enjoy men of the 24th infantry this is Texas. And we have a great opportunity here. Legacy, if proven worthy, will carry us all the way to the shores of France. Things are a little different down here in the South. I will expect you men to obey the racial code. Yes, sir. Get back with the others. Just go ahead and drive this machine. Officer Cross, this is a white man's world. Every man here has got a lit fuse. Jim Crow's the law. Respect it. What are we gonna do? The police brutalize us, sir. All we want is to be treated as soldiers. As military police, you are to ensure order of the men of the 24th Infantry only. Drop the knife. robbed of my honor you get out of here before they take yours too the general can get the 24th in the fight he's never going to do that what do we do sir william i've done all i can do here we have a problem we're gonna take our country back law run this town there's a militia on the way are they which way did they go Pushing people down. 
Sooner or later, they rise up. Fire! Can you identify any of the leaders of the mutiny? When I ain't the gun, I saw a man. He didn't see one back. Trey and Kevin, uh, thank you for being on the Brown and Black podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. So let's begin immediately with why you felt that this story in particular, 24th, was the story for you to tell out of so many other stories uh, that are out there that have gone silent, that have not been taught in textbooks, that uh, most people don't even have not even heard of. Uh, why in this one in particular was important for you to tell? I, I kind of it originated with me and then and, and, and Trey and I hooked up and, uh, and really brought it to what you see today. Uh, you know, for me, it was, it started from seeing the photograph of the trial and the trial photograph. There's really one photo of the trial. And uh, when I saw that photo, 63 black soldiers being surrounded by white soldiers with, with fixed bayonets and the caption said the largest murder trial in American history. And it's like, well, what's this all about? So the fact that it was a hidden history was, was a big part of it. But I think, I think part of it in terms of really movies and imagery and the things that, that you guys are all about in terms of your show is that, you know, they fought back. They fought. Yeah. And, and, and the, the fighting back part of it is, I think, makes it different than a lot of the stories we've seen in the past. And what, what, what history we do know, that horrific period from 1880 to 1930 or so in America where their black communities are just being wiped out. They're just being genocide. Folks do know of that. They know of the victimization of these things, but they don't know that, you know, that sometimes people fought back. And in most cases, actually, they fought back. But, but in no case... They fight back like they fought back in Houston. Hmm. And the fact that they fought back the way they fought in Houston really kind of changed. It changes the dynamic, cinematic dynamic, cinematic history dynamic of this. And it also changed the actual reality of how the case was handled, how the, hmm. how the incident was handled. One of the things that you do best, uh, uh, can I call you Kevin? Okay. <laughs> uh, one of the things that you do best, uh, Kevin, I think, as now I'm a film critic, uh, you know, pop culture pundit, but I'm also a filmmaker and a, a screenwriter. And recently I ha was writing a screenplay uh, that took place in the past. And prior to that, I was writing another screenplay that took place in the past. And it's about African-American history. And I, I came to the realization that you know, the way we don't learn things, as Jack was saying in school, the way we don't know ourselves, not only does it shape our current identity, but it shapes us for the future. And the realization I came to is that if you change the past, you change the future. So I want to know from both of you, uh, and, and I have to assume, uh, because I know your work, I have to assume Trey was really integral to creating that main character that everybody, sure. you know, uh, understands yeah, no, no, no. and follow his journey. Uh, why do you think it's important to to tell the history and really not pull any punches because you don't? 
Well, I think, I think, you know, the term I always use is, I think in American life, the history owns us. We don't own the history. And, and that, mm. the, how the history owns us is that uh, one of the reasons what we probably don't know about the Houston right is that teachers didn't know how to teach it. People didn't even know really how, they didn't even know how to talk about it. And so black folks, white folks, kind of, you know, no one knew how to talk about it in the public space, really. Uh, and, and so oftentimes these things just got buried. I mean, black people were made to feel embarrassed about the Houston riot. Mm. And so the black community itself even kind of ends up kind of shutting down and, and steering away from it. And as well, obviously the white community, you know, liberal whites are, are you know, afraid that they, they use the Houston right against African-Americans. They use, they use them, they use it as an excuse not to integrate the military until the 1950s. Uh, and so, so, you know, these kind of incidents oftentimes were used against African-Americans and then, and then, and then whites would also, you know, often just not know how to respond to it. I mean, you know, you know, obviously the people against the, against African-American progress used it to like keep the military segregated. Others just kind of just push, put it away because they felt like it, it hurt the cause in some kind of way. And, uh, that that whole thing that that is still present today in so many ways, that whole thing you know still governs the way we we look at the past. We you know we don't learn much about this because teachers don't know how to teach it. They're not instructed how to teach it. They they feel guilty teaching it. And people when people watch these movies, they start to feel guilty. You're you're not in the screen. You didn't do this. You don't have anything to feel guilty about. The guilt that that I think often people feel is that they don't know about it, and they and the and their ignorance oftentimes makes them feel guilty. But but we've got to move past that. We've got to we got to find a way to own this history and not and not and to be able to tell these stories, not in a way that 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 shuts people down. And and because this, you know, George Floyd's death and murder. Uh, could have basically happened 103 years ago in Houston. And, and that has, then we just continue to recycle and repeat this history over and over and over again, because the history owns us. We don't own the history. And so, so that's that, that to me, and part of owning that history is giving it to people uncut. You need to know how it really happened. You need to know it unfiltered, and uncensored so that you get the full impact of why we have had this history in this country that we've lived in, right? Mm. This, this history is, is, you know, so bad and so turbulent and so racial and so violent that we, we literally hide it. I mean, it's crazy when you think about it, we literally hide it. So, so that, that for me, that's, that's why, you know, we come at it the way we do. I, I, I keep, we keep talking about this, like history, owns us we don't own history but we've tried to own it which is why we give you what we want you to have we teach the children what we want them to have imagine it if i don't take to your history i get an f if i get an f that that dictates how i live my life moving forward that that's a that's a mark a scarlet letter that follows me into whom I marry, where I go to school, what kind of job I receive, 
because you wanted to own the history instead of allow the history to own us, allow us to be identified by what we've done together, how we've lived together, how we've fought together, how we've loved together. It's, it's cut up. And there's, there's so much like ignorance is bliss, I think, in our time, in current day. And nobody wants to talk about this because, you know, I'm far removed from it. I didn't do it. My mom didn't do it. You're talking about slavery. You're talking about the turn of the 20th century. Seeing is believing. And now we have cameras to catch people. And we mm -hmm. feel so much more. In 65 in Selma, you know, King wanted you to see what happened at Edmund Pettus Bridge. That way you could feel it. And with these films now, where people still want to own the history, you know, it's, it's about what you see. If you don't see this, you won't think this way. You won't think there's a point of reference that you need to be able to communicate because communication has been lost. Communication has been dictated by, the by, by oppressors who want you to speak their language and don't, aren't, con aren't considerate of the compassion or the language of compassion between the races in our nation, in our world. We need to feel it. I mean, as an actor, as, as, a, as a screenwriter, as a filmmaker, just in general, like this is why we do what we do, so that we can own it together, so that we can raise the notion that it's not just what you say. You know, our experience is a collective one. Our nation is made of the collective. It's a melting pot of all of us, black, white, Hispanic, everybody that, that we're blessed to have here to, to make this thing up. So, you know, controversial or not, cautionary tale or not, stories like these need to be told so that we have a point of reference and we have, you know, we can speak from a place not just of, of, of oppression, not just of pain, but of pride, pride in knowing who we are, even if it's controversial. I mean, as an actor, that just motivates me to continue to tell stories like these. And that's what, right. what, that, that's what hooked into me with this story initially. How much time did you both dedicate to make this happen? How difficult was the journey to film it? And do you feel that you've accurately portrayed what happened in history uh, in this film? It started a long time ago. It started about 30 years ago when I saw that photograph. And, and I wrote the script about 30 years ago. And at that time, I think I would argue that Hollywood was a different place. I mean, Hollywood was, you just I made mean, black dramas, historical dramas specifically, very hard to make. If you got them made, they had to have a white character who was kind of central to the story as well. And that was the very thing I was trying to not do. I did not want it to be, I did not want to, to, I wanted to be from the point of view of these men. Yeah. I wanted it to be from the black point of view. And, and point of view is critical to telling stories of history because, you know, we've been fed the history oftentimes in that biracial, that, that, that white, black, white, Latino, whatever, that, whatever the story may be, we need a white character in there because Hollywood, and literally I had a producer tell me this one time, he told me white people don't want to see movies where all the white people are bad. I let the producer tell me that one time. Hmm. And, and the way I've always felt about that is in history, sometimes there was not a white guy in the room. Sometimes, sometimes there wasn't a white guy in, in, the, in, the, in the situation that did the right thing. 
you know? And that's just, that's just a historical fact. Doesn't mean that down the street there wasn't some good white folks, but in, in, in this situation, they weren't there. And it didn't, and that didn't happen. And, and oftentimes they wanted us to put a white character in these films to make it, they, they felt palatable for, for white audiences. I think white people are better than that. I think white people, the white people that are not better than that, are not, are not going to see this movie in the first place. <laughs> but the white people that are better than that want the real deal. They go to movies like this because they want the, they want the uncut truth. They want, they want what really did happen. And, uh, and so that's a big part of it. And so the movie just, I just couldn't get the movie made. That script would give me other jobs, but I, but it, I couldn't get any, any traction. And so I was working on Black Klansman at the time, and uh, and Trey and I had done Destination Planet Negro and and Jay Hawkers, and we wanted to work on something else. I said, "Hey man, I got this script. I've been wanting to get back to it. Uh, you know, I want let's let's make the romance bigger. Let's let's update it." And I just gave it to Trey, and he ran with it and, and came back and did all the changes that I thought the script needed. And we worked on it some more. And, and I'd always thought Trey would be perfect for, for Boston. Uh, you know, you know, when he was in school at KU and I was his, his professor, and we talked about it and I just knew he would be great. I just knew he, he was perfect for the role and he is perfect for the role. And so, so that, from, from that point of view, that's how it kind of started from me and I let Trey from, from there. But what Kevin isn't telling you is he is a wealth of knowledge. Like you come to a house, I, I would I would fly down from wherever I was to come to Lawrence and like this books, paperwork splayed everywhere. Like <laughs> where did we start? <laughs> it was like a forensic, like I mean, it's, it's literally, literally just a wealth of knowledge. And there, there's so many you know, there, there's so many different um, references and, and just, just in general, in terms of like so many different source material, but not to the point to where it could really explain the night. Uh, it was raining really hard. People couldn't see, you know, who was, who was there and who was doing what to, I don't want to give too much away, but who was doing what to, you know, to them ultimately. And, and, and then the court martial in of itself done really quickly, no due process. I mean, it's just, to this day, it's it's it, it's still you know mired in controversy, uh, in in terms of what should have been done, who specifically did what. You know what I mean? Um, and you know, it, I think that gave us the liberty. First of all, it, it kind of put us in a position where it had to be you know um, uh, inspired by true events. But that gave us the liberty to tell other true stories that we deal with today that have been dealt with you know since. Black people were in the country in the first place since came over on the boat. We're dealing with, you know, intra-racial relationships. We're dealing with colorism. We're dealing with the stigma of the scarlet letter and, you know, the dark-skinned man in a romance with the, I'm sorry, the light-skinned man in a romance with a dark-skinned woman. And just, just breaking down all of the, 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 the miseducations of, of what, or, or, or even miscommunications of what is proper in the Black community. Um, and to me, that's what keeps it relevant, you know, as far as we can watch this film and say, wow, I dealt with this, my grandmother dealt with this, this, this is, you know, it's hitting home for me. That not much has changed in terms of the way that they police, but also not much has changed with the way that we see ourselves because of what was ingrained in our identity since slavery. And I mean, it really is a film of accountability in terms of, yes, race relations and violence in the name of racism, which is, is completely wrong and no one 
and deserves. I mean, it should be eradicated from our from from life as we know it. But there's also things to deal with in terms of who we are individually, because we make up the nation together. Right. Once we can understand ourselves individually, find that strength, find that hit that history and the honor that lies within that, we can truly be who we are individually, and we can add to the collective and build you know, a nation that it should have been instead of that it is now. I think we can end the interview right there. <laughs> no, I, I, well, actually, you answered another question I was going to ask both of you, uh, and, and it had to do with, you know, how every character represented some aspect of, of African-American life uh, then and now. Uh, but one of the things that really came through uh, was that at the end of the day, uh, these are human beings. And, and how, what is it to be human? At what point do you lose your humanity? What point do you forget that that person is human? And part of it has to do with what you say the film is doing is it's changing the narrative. Uh, and, and you also touched upon language. So I just want to know if, if both of you could talk a little bit about one of the things that happens in this country all the time. You know, you hear uh, people in Texas saying they want the Latinos to go back home. You know, they were there or before kill us. The, you know, <laughs> yeah, Walmart. They, the Latinos were there before <laughs> yeah, the white yeah. people. But right. the narrative that they have is that they have this ownership. So their perspective. So right. can you talk a little bit about changing the narrative, perspective, and just the language that we, we tell ourselves? Well, sure. Well, you know, that incident at the Walmart is a great example of how, you know, we show in the film that, you know, communities of color have been attacked specifically you know people know about Tulsa now because of Watchmen but 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 these communities of color have been attacked all over the place during uh, during this rise of, of segregation and Jim Crow and 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 now those same communities of color are being attacked now because kind of a reassertion of of, 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 of almost like a, a, a new attempt at making things you know, white supremacy, bring, bringing back white supremacy again. Not that it's ever totally gone away, but... Making America great again, right. Yes, <laughs> making America great again. And, and so you've got, you've got these, these incidents where, you know, synagogues are attacked and, and Latino communities are attacked and black communities mm -hmm. are attacked and churches are attacked and all these horrible incidents that are happening. And, and so it comes out of the same thing that the soldiers are living in in the 24th. They, they, are, they are living in this time where communities of color are being attacked. And, and so there's this paradigm they have about like, <clears throat> an attack can come at any time, any place, anywhere. Right. And so the reality of a mob coming is, a, is not some crazy notion. This is, I mean, the mobs were there last week. And, and, and so, so that, that's a big part of kind of, for me, a big part of, of the historical part of it. The other part of it for me is just that uh, I was in a riot in high school. I was in a race riot in high school. And, and, and I got to see guys I knew break. Guys, there was a really racial, messed up situation that kept boiling and boiling and boiling. And just as Dr. King says, a riot is a language of the unheard. When people are unheard for so long, at some point, they just break. And that's why you see riots on television, and you say, why are they burning down their own neighborhood? Man, these guys that I knew who were friends of mine, they just started doing stuff that I didn't understand at all. 
And I understood their frustration and fear and anger because I had that same anger too, but they had reached the point they didn't give a damn anymore. And when you reach to that point, you don't give a damn anymore. There's no logic to anything. In fact, the Houston riot, I would argue, is probably one of the most logical arguments, logical riots and rebellions because they still held together in the beginning like a military force. And then as the night went on, they broke up and split up and it just became the rage just takes over and, and there's no accountability about anything. But yeah. that's the nature of, of that kind of racial frustration. It, when it blows, get out, get out of the way. Why'd you put yourself out there like that? I'm a Negro. No, you ain't no Negro. You's a lighty. Yeah, well, you hate me? You think I got it easier? You right you got it easier than me. Look at you, boy. It's hard for me. My mom and my papa were born slaves. I don't want to hear that the proclamation, they became teachers at the Freedmen's Bureau. They died in Atlanta in 1906. In the riots? Yeah. Their friends, their community, they took it upon themselves to send me overseas to educate and protect me. It's the best education a person could get. But it separated me from being colored in America. I needed to be united with the legacy that my parents lived for and died for. You understand what I'm saying to you? I needed to be united with the blood in my veins. So I came here. And here is where I'm going to stay, Walker. This is my home now. I am man. It's a very powerful moment in the film. Um, and I wanted to, Trey, have you talk about the strength of Corporal uh, William Boston. Um, this is a man that never discharged his gun. He never killed anybody during that moment, yet ideologically, he was willing to die uh, for, for that moment for what that meant and for the justice that needed to happen. Can you talk about how both of you went ahead and, and, and wrote uh, Boston in, in that way and, and the strength that he had? Because it's inspirational to a certain extent, but it's also there's a moment where you just, I think we're so conditioned to see a happy ending. Mm -hmm. We wanted to see him live uh, and tell the story to his grandkids. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the, the strength uh, of a lot of these characters, uh, in particular Boston. I mean, Boston is, I said this, Kevin, you remember me saying, he's a superhero. Like he's, this dude is my superhero. <laughs> like, it's just the level of sacrifice and the name of love and honor and brotherhood and legacy, you know? And, and in a way, you know, he, Boston is the, is, is, is the audience. He's, he's in that juxtaposed position where there's, you know, being active and inactive at the same time, concerned about participation in terms of brotherhood and loyalty, but on the fence about humanity and what this does to me to participate, being caught in that space. And I think that's where we want the audience just in general, why, why we couldn't afford to, you know, hold the punches in, in this film, why we had to give it the way that we gave it, because it, it's, it's conflicting. You know, and, and, and with a person like Boston, who, you know, is born of, of slaves turned abolitionists, 
raised in, in an abolitionist community, sent off to school as progressive as it gets, but loses his parents, has an understanding of his position in legacy in terms of the, you know his parents, the, the blood of his family, and and the, and the 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 strife that the people are living in and with his people, people that look like him. He had to come back. He had to go. You know. Um, I was thinking James Baldwin, James Baldwin, why I left America. <laughs> yeah, he had, to, he had to come back. He had to come back. And to, and to be able to do that to, you know, with, with the intention of helping, of, of giving everything that he had, not from a position of privilege, but from a position of brotherhood. I got it, so you're going to have it. Mm-hmm. And then having to deal with colorism in a way that he hasn't before, having to deal with racism outside and inside of his culture at the same time. And still right. hold on to those values. That's a strong, that's a Superman. <laughs> that's, you know, it's, 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 it's Martin Luther King. It's Booker T. Washington. It's W.B. Du Bois. It's, it's Obama. You know what I mean? Like to, to be caught in a position where you have to be something for one group and then you have to be something for another. Who are you to yourself? And, and can you live with what you do in that moment? You know, it's, I think that's everybody's life. And, you know, I, I hope just as in terms of the audience that watches that, um, that they can see that we're in that moment now as a nation. Right now, we're, we're literally caught between, you know, loyalty, our culture, and our very lives. In terms of lives, in terms of who are we? Who are we to our children? Who, what are our kids going to say about us? You know what I mean? If I do this, yes, it's it's it's... I'm down, but I'm also out. <laughs> you know what I mean? In terms of, of my own humanity, I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> um, but it's inspiring, almost to tears. It's inspiring. And I think that, you know, that's, that, that's the soul of the people that we represented. You know, not a group of, of people, vigilantes or whatever, who wanted to just go out for the sake of revenge, but people who had no, who felt they had no choice for the, for the, for the present and for the future. I mean, and it's, you know, I don't want to make it noble, but it's certainly sacrificial, wouldn't you say? No, and you know, it's, yeah, I, I mean, I can go on and on about Boston and the men, but in particular, you know, it's just, it's really something, the sacrifice of, you know, have, having two opportunities to live his own life, do his own thing, whether that was, you know, continue to stay in France and do his thing, come over, you know, here and, and go to the officer training school with his woman and just leave the guys. And, and when there was a problem, he stood up and talk about it. He just did it. You know, show me your words. I'll show you my deeds. That's the kind of man that Boston is. And it's pretty damn inspiring. I'm just going to say that, that, uh, train I based, uh, Boston on, on one of the real soldiers there, this guy by the name of Baltimore. And, you know, we don't know much about his real history. We fictionalized his, his story, came up with his background and so forth. But, but we do know he was a beloved figure in the regiment. He was a beloved figure. Uh, and they really kind of marched on the city because, in, some, in many ways, because of their love for him, because he was so well-respected. And when you see... When you see his photograph, I mean, we we were able to find which soldier he was in the big photograph. And when you see his face, 
there's something, there's just something, I mean, it's, it's very haunting in the sense that, you know, these guys, you know, they fought in San Juan Hill, they fought in the Philippine insurrection, you know, they would fight anybody, any place, anywhere for America, knowing that they did not have the, their rights at home. They were fighting for rights they did not have themselves. Then they knew, then they knew that. So the very nature of them is sacrificial. I mean, the very nature of, 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 Black soldiers, Latino soldiers, mm-hmm. you know, Asian soldiers. World War II is another great example. That Asian soldiers fighting in Germany, and their parents are in a concentration camp in an internment camp back home. And so, so you know, they are they are. There's a sacrificial kind of nature to the very element of of, of soldiers, black soldiers, soldiers of color that just goes inherent, I would argue, really up until the last little conflicts we have. I mean, that, con- that problem is still existing in Vietnam in a major way. We did that when, in, in Five Bloods, but it's like that, it's just now these last Iraq, you know, kind of stuff that, Afghanistan, that, that these problems aren't just burden on the soldiers of color that are fighting. Well, um, I, I just want to ask you both some questions from, from, uh, from a creative standpoint, because as a, as a filmmaker, I look at everything as a film lover, film critic, and, and a filmmaker. And uh, I lo- the fact that I've seen so much of your work, Kevin, uh, I've watched you grow as a writer. Uh, and there's definitely an elegance to, to the way you tell stories. And, and I have to agree with you. I think, you know, you talked about these teachers not knowing how to teach history. Uh, I have to say, I think film is probably one of the most powerful mediums you could possibly have to yeah. really teach us about our past. So I'm wondering, with the experience of you at this point, you know, at least seven years since I spoke to you, uh, working with Spike, doing the other films you've done, and then with you, uh, uh, Trey, having, you know, developed a character for four or five seasons, uh, what were you able to bring uh, to this piece now at this point in your careers that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do seven years ago in terms of how you can tell stories? Well, for me, uh, I think that every time, every story you tell, every film you make, you you learn and you grow from it. And 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 how, you know, how I think I grew from this film was, you know, was really a big part of it is point of view. And and point of view to me, it's. I mean, I'll get a little technical here, but I think it's 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 really important because. Um, you know, we, we tried to tell a film where Boston was at the center of really everything that goes on in the film. We don't, we really don't break point of view from him. When we do go to other characters, they're talking kind of still about Boston. They're still talking about the situation that they're invested in with him. And, and that, that to me has become a real big part of storytelling for me. I mean, that's a big technical kind of thing that I'm really kind of convinced about. I mean, the movies that I love, oftentimes, I, I would argue, I tell my students this, the, uh, the movies that, that win best actor for an actor, most of the time, they are movies that are told totally from that character's point of view. And mm-hmm. even when you go to other characters, they're talking about the central character in those scenes. So, so, so that, that, that's something that I really, I'm a big proponent of that. I try to... I try to remember that in everything I do, really. It means if I'm telling an Arthur Ashe story right now and I'm trying 
and then you know, trying to do do that for him. And and we try to do that with with the twenty fourth. And and I think it. I think that's a that's a big. I think it, it really helps in terms of in making the audience invest in not just the main character, but the things that the main character is invested in. So the fact that Boston has dedicated himself to all these other to the to the challenge and the the, the mission of all of this, you know, it, you invest in him, but you also invest in all his friends, all his com- comrades, his problem outside, his 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 love life, all of that stuff. Yeah, um, I mean, I was on Empire for uh, six seasons, and I've been working before that, and and I was in school, you know, before that I was in school for ten years, you know, honing the craft and going from place to place. Um, fortunate to go from a two-year to, you know, an all-black you know, institution, mostly HBCU at Prairie View, and then majority white at the University of Kansas, and Amden in L.A., and then Yale School of Drama, which wasn't a whole lot of us, you know what I mean, but, you know, a whole lot of history. And I just feel that, you know, from place to place, I just feel blessed that God has taken me from place to place and, and prepared me and equipped me in such a way to be able to meet the moment. At Empire, every year, for the most part, I was, you know, I'd start the year off by saying, what do I want to work on? This is, I'm going to, this, you know, I felt more like an actor uh, for hire than an actor. Now, this, to me, like, this is where my career begins, and I wanted to be ready for this moment. So every year, I would challenge myself. This year, I'm going to work on, I'm, if I'm going to be here, you know what I mean? Let me, let me grow. So this year, I'm going to work on listening. Whole year goes by. Next year, I'm going to work on, um, on, on just, just straight silence. This year, I'm going to interrupt and see, you know what I mean, what, what I can do in, as far as interrupting people and what that brings out of somebody else. This year, I'm going to, you know, every year it was something completely different to elicit different responses from, you know, my, my cast, from me, um, and see what, what room there was to wiggle in place. So when we got to the 24th, I was ready. You know what I mean? Um, it was a, it's, I mean, it was a profound story, an important story. You want to do things technically right, but in between all that life. And I'd lived enough life, you know, in, in my opinion, um, and had enough experiences in front of the camera doing various things, like dedicated to doing various things, you know, repetitiously for, oh, for years after year after year that, you know, when it came time to play, uh, I was ready. And I just, I mean, I... I I say that to say, um, you know, it, it, I've just been focused on how I learn, not just in school, but as, as a human being with other human beings, because that's what we're playing. That's what we're eliciting, the, the, the soul of man and, and the, the best that man can be and the worst that man can be and wh- where we are in between. And, you know, the only way to find that is to, outside of my perspective anyway, is to play in other people's perspectives. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I felt like that got me ready. Um, and it also, you know, working with various people, um, you learn how to take direction. You kind of get a little bit of an idea about, you know, what's in between their note and your desire <laughs> as an actor mm-hmm. and try, you know what I mean? Try and try and play the lines as best you can. Very athletic, but you need, you know, you need training. As a Latino, uh, man, I was watching this movie and from my interpretation of it, you know, it was very interesting to see 
these stories that haven't really been told uh, from the black experience. And, you know, I kept on thinking, it's like, the Latino experience also isn't told. We've, Latinos have been a part of the American Revolutionary War. They've been in a part of every single war. Yet you don't see any movies like 24th about the Latino experience, about the soldiers that fought in these wars. Um, and I, I need that. Mm-hmm. I need that for me. I need to know what my contributions were. I mean, just recently, Mike and I were talking about the American Latino Museum. We don't even have one. We have pockets here in different cities that don't really tell our stories. And I wanted to ask you guys, you've been able to do 24th. Um, why do you think that you don't see films about Latino soldiers or the Latino history there? Is it truly difficult for us to get these movies done? Is there any interest for these types of movies? Is there a need and a, a desire to listen to those stories as well? Clearly, yes. I mean, I mean, you know, I feel the same way you did. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I make the movies I make is because I felt just like you said. I didn't see myself, uh, you know, I wanted, I, you know, when I was go see, as a kid, I go see a John Wayne movie and, you know, or any movie damn near, and we weren't in, we weren't there. We weren't there. You see those movies on television, we weren't there. And so, you know, that was a big, big thing for me growing up. I, I think that, um, a big part of the problem um, is that Latino filmmakers have to make those films. And so that really means that Latino filmmakers have to have enough juice in Hollywood to get a Latino director has to have enough juice in Hollywood to get that film made. I mean, things did not progress for us until Spike had his success. I mean, until then, in the 70s, you had Gordon Parks, you had a few other black directors, but as a whole, there were not. It was there were not a lot of black films from a black point of view about black history specifically not being made, and so it's really. I would argue it's just really been just the last ten years or so that that things have moved forward, and I think the next step is for Latino filmmakers to do that same thing. I think that they have to, and it's not even you. You don't ask permission. You have to. You just have to <laughs> tell us. I mean, we, 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 you know, they're not, you know, white Hollywood's not going to say, it's time for the Latino now. It's <laughs> no. like, you just have to do it and then show them and they go, oh, it's time for the Latino now. And like Mother Van Peebles. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's, it's, it's literally how it works. I mean, there's, there's, no, there's no kind of permission. You can't have a meeting and they figure it out. It's not probably going to happen. Uh, you do it and you do it successfully. I mean, a movie, you know, when the movie does it, and I mean, when you look at Spike's success in the 80s, early 80s, when black directors weren't even a concept, you know, he makes this little film and it makes a lot of money. And suddenly it's like, you know, black, black people could be directors. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a hell of a deal. Let's, let's, let's maybe start thinking about that. And, and the same thing applies here. I think it, you, the minute somebody you know, makes a, makes a big film, you know, doesn't have to be a big size film, but a, a, a film that makes money and, and tells that Latino story that, that we've not heard that we're talking about. I think that, I think things change. From that. I think that's Hollywood that takes notice and they get interested and they, then they suddenly discover, Oh, there's all this history that we've not been telling. And, and there's these, this wrath of incredible stories that need to be told. Oh we, yeah. We should probably invest in that. Yeah. And even then you got to soldier on. 
even then, you know, with the 24th, everybody told us no. I don't mind. I'll tell them, Kevin, I'm going to tell them. Everybody <laughs> told us no. Everybody. Everybody. Everybody said no. Wow. From top to bottom. This whole thing, in my opinion, with what I've seen, was divine. It was time. It was time for this thing to be told, unearthed from, from the blood and dirt that we stand on and uh, called America. It was time. And it took soldiering. It took, you know, trying to explain and over-explain. It took an Academy Award. <laughs> you know what I mean? To, to get people to even, you know, want to begin to have the conversation. But we were blessed, man. It was, it's God. It's, it's, it's us. It's our faith. It's our work. It's our walk. And even then, nobody wants to listen, you know? Even then, you get, you know, you, you, don't, you might not get as much publicity. You might not get as much advertising because it's not the history that, you know, people want to tell. It's, it's the history that they own, not the history that owns them. And, I mean, that, that's, that's literally where we're standing right now. Like, we have something for you in terms of, you know, it's, it's entertaining, it's educational, it's history that you know nothing about that everybody needs to know. And some people just don't, you know, don't, don't care or, or, don't, or don't, you know, stand behind, you know, what it is that you're trying to do for the benefit of not only the film community, but of the world. You're absolutely right, the Latinos need that. Yes, yes, because that's our history. That's our world history. It's not just yours, it's ours. And that's, that's, how we communicate, but you sometimes I think you have to you have to step in the in the pilot seat, sit in the pilot seat, and press on the gas even when people are trying to pull right. on your brakes. You know, you know that thing that that thing that just real quick that thing that that Trey was just saying. Look, you know, black history is American history. Latino mm-hmm. history is American history. That's right. I mean, it's, right. Not, it's not it's not it's not the Latino story. It's the American story. That right. the That's Latinos- what Barack Obama always says. It's not the about it's not the Latino yes. American history. It's not the black. It's the United States of American. That's history. right. That's mm-hmm. that's right. And you tell you tell Latino history. You're telling American history. And, and that's that's what that's what we're fighting for. That's what all of this is all about. That's what we're trying to arrive to, where it's just taken for granted that Latino history is American history, that Black history is American. That's we don't need the month anymore. That it, <laughs> right, <laughs> right, absolutely. It's, You're it's, so it's right. Embedded, it's embedded in, in in the way we just look at um, American life. Do you see, uh, from both your perspective, uh, being in the business, do you see us being able to pivot? our thinking to, you know, we're, you know, our history is deep rooted in this racism and we're at the most divisive, you know, in my lifetime. Uh, and so uh, what, what's your perspective and, and how much do you think films like this will actually be able to play art specifically play a part in changing and pivoting? When I was going to NYU, um, I went to, um, uh, had my family, and we were looking at a place to live in New York. And and I must have been on the phone when I called on the realtor. I must have my white voice on. Boots <laughs> <laughs> uh, Riley there, huh? And the guy said, the guy told me, he said, "Oh yeah, I got a bunch of places I want to show you. I got them out in Brooklyn, a bunch of places. And uh, this is this is in the early '80s, right? This is in the '80s, mid mid '80s. He said, oh, a bunch of places I want to show you. So when I walk in the office, he sees me. He goes." Some of those places aren't going to work out. Ah. And then when he took me on the tour, he drove down this one street in Brooklyn 
and there were American flags hanging outside of everyone's house. And he said to me, this is the area that you can't live in. And so I always, wow. when I tell that story, I always say American flags often, when you, when you coming off the boat and you see the Statue of Liberty, it says welcome, but the American flag also says get out and stay out. Yeah. And, it, and, that, and that is that duality that we have of, you know, you, you know, the promise of America and the reality of America, right? This is kind of what, what the 24th is all about. This is kind of the way that we've always had to live our lives in this country as people of color, that we, that we, there's this great promise. And then there's this, there's this, there's this kick in the behind, right? And it's, and it just goes in every aspect of our lives. And uh, I think right now, you know, if I think the fact that, that I call him King Tang, um, you know, <laughs> if, you know, if you know, if Trump, Trump, if if we, we get rid of that dude, and the best thing about Trump is that no one has to be convinced we got a racial problem in America anymore. Right. <laughs> no, that's every, true. Everyone, everyone gets it now. That's the best thing he did. You know, I, I call him the, the roach whisperer. It's like Obama, <laughs> Obama, Obama was that dude, you know, that, that, you know, when he, when Obama showed up, all the roaches, just like, you know, how in the ghetto, you turn on the lights, all the roaches mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it, Obama, all the roaches run away and hide. And he's now the roach whisperer. He turned, <laughs> he walks in all the roaches and come back out. Right. I mean, and, yeah. and, and, and that, that is, that is kind of what we, and so the fact that, People have responded to George Floyd's death the way they have, the way they've marched, and I mean, all colors, all ages, all classes of folks. You know, this is this is the this is the promise of America. I mean, this is the best. This is the best of what we do. This is this is every progressive thing that's happened in the country came out of protests like this. And so the verdict's still out. Obviously, hopefully, we're going to take it to the next step. Though, hopefully, there'll be police changes. There'll be changes in society. They'll we can move forward with this whole madness, but uh, it's a it's a very very exciting time right now. Thank you so much for giving us your time and your insights and telling the story of twenty fourth. That's it for this 14th episode of Brown and Black. Thank you to Kevin and Trey for being on the show. And if you'd like to support this podcast, please subscribe on any podcast platform and leave a review. Your help allows us to be heard by many more people. And you can also reach us on Twitter at Brown Black Pod, on Instagram at Brown Black Podcast, and on our new YouTube channel at Brown Black Podcast. See you next week on another episode of Brown and Black. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.